Well, this morning, would you turn your Bibles to the New Testament? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1 today. And with the start of the fall season, we're launching a new sermon series. And it does feel like fall a little bit today, doesn't it? No? It's a little cloudy, but it'll be warm a little bit later. We're going to start this new sermon series, and we're entitling it One. And it's a series on the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is six chapters long. And it's neatly divided into chapters one, two, and three. It's about theology for the church, a deep theology for the church. And we're going to complete chapters one, two, and three before Thanksgiving this year. And then we're going to have our uh, series on the birth of Jesus as we approach the Christmas season. Isn't this weird? I'm talking about all of this already. It's, uh, it's strange, isn't it? Summer is just over. But um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to complete before um, Thanksgiving. And then after the new year in, in 2020, we're going to finish up our series entitled 1, chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians. And it's all about where the first half was about theology for the church, the second half is about a, a practice or practical theology for the church, and we're going to finish that up before Easter in 2020. Now, the Apostle Paul is the author of this letter to the church in Ephesus, and we'll talk more about Paul in future sermons, but I think the question is, why, why one? Why, do we, why are we calling this series one anyways? And, and there's a couple key um, themes and key verses in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, we're going to cover that today. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the reasons why we're entitling this series One. And the other, um, a theme that carries throughout Ephesians is this unity or oneness. Ephesians 4 4 through 6, it says, Therefore, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So one describes this unity and oneness that we have all together as we worship the one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we're calling our series One. Our text today is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Praise God for his word for us today. 
Today we're going to talk a little bit about just the first part of a theological concepts. We're going to look at two theological concepts and we're going to try to make them as simple as we can today. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in a structure that's familiar in many of his letters. It's an intentional structure that he uses that's designed to teach deep theological concepts or doctrines so that simple, just regular simple people, people who aren't um, formally trained, formally educated, working class people, the readers of this letter, so that they can understand doctrine and theological concepts. And so Paul begins this letter like he begins many of his letters to churches with who God is. And then he talks about who we are. In many of his letters, that's what you see, especially in the beginning. It's who God is and then who we are. And once you understand who God is and then you understand who you are, then you'll have a foundation to be taught how to live out what it is to be a Christian in the world around us. And that's exactly how the book of Ephesians is written. So our first theological concept or doctrine we're going to look at today is, number one, our sufficiency in Christ. And Paul begins this letter in a very common greeting or common salutation of that day. In verse 1, he writes, Paul, he identifies himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is this common greeting. You're going to find many of these letters that Paul writes to churches with a similar greeting just like this. And then Paul gives instruction on the first doctrine or theological concept. And it's found in, in verses uh, two at the end, all in verse three. It says, praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. <clears throat> praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what it means is, right here, up here on the screen, what it means is in Jesus, we have everything that we need spiritually. In Jesus, whatever we would need spiritually, we have. Uh, Peter writes about this in his, his second uh, letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this, His divine power has given us everything we need. That's such an important idea and phrase and doctrine and theological concept. In his divine power, he's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You have everything that you need. You need forgiveness? If, if you need forgiveness, if you think about all of my past and all of the all the mistakes and sin and wrongdoing and disobedience that I did in my past, you have it in Christ. You need forgiveness for today, even this morning, as you're getting ready to come here this morning. Do you need forgiveness for that? You have it 
through Christ. You need forgiveness for tomorrow and what's going to happen tomorrow because if all this happened in the past and everything happened this morning and even now and then in the future tomorrow, it's not going to get any better. You have that through Jesus Christ. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is all that we need. We need practical instruction on how to live as a Christian. We have the Bible. And it's everything we need for instruction, the Bible says, for, for, for training and righteousness, from correction for our disobedience. From cover to cover, the Bible's everything that you need. You have forgiveness, you have instruction, and you need the power to accomplish anything in life. And the motivation to actually want to do things, the Bible said through the Holy Spirit, you have all the power and you have all the motivation that you'll ever need. I don't always want to do the right thing in my life. That's the truth, just to be honest. I don't always want to do the right thing in my life, but the Holy Spirit's working in me, in, from, changed me from the inside out to give me not just the power, but the motivation to carry on in my day. And the moment we give our life to God, we have all that we need in forgiveness, we have all that we need in practical instruction and all that we need, all the power that we, we would need, all the motivation that we would need. So how does any of this work, this sufficiency in Christ? How does it work? Well, the first is this, that God always provides what we need, not necessarily what we want. And I think we understand this, but just to put it down on paper, God provides everything that we need, not necessarily what we want, and we need to trust him in that. And anyone who's a parent, whether you're a really good parent or not such a great parent, anyone who's a parent understands this principle. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews talks about this, and he says that God is our father, and, and he loves us, and he's going to provide for us. But there's also something called discipline, because God knows what we need, and he doesn't always give us what we want. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And discipline is painful at times. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, God always, he knows what we need and he provides what we need. But he doesn't always provide necessarily what we want. And that's our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. The second way it works is this. God uses a just-in-time delivery system. For you in the business world, I, I, you understand the, the just-in-time principle or methodology. Now, just-in-time is this business system that was first developed in Japan many, many years ago. And just-in-time is this methodology. It's primarily aimed at reducing uh, times within production as well as response times in, in, uh, from suppliers and delivery systems to consumers. Now, anyone who's ordered stuff on Amazon has experienced just-in-time delivery. Now, um, the goal is to not to have this huge warehouse filled with um, expensive and costly items just stacked up on the shelves for days and months and weeks and years that just gonna, you know, you built it and it's all of this valuable inventory. The goal is not to have all this stuff in this big warehouse, but the goal is 
<clears throat> and just in time is to develop is to uh, develop a system that anticipates a need, produces the product, and then delivers it to the consumer just in time. And this is kind of how God works with us. Now, this is how God gives us this strength and grace in our lives. He never gives it to us ahead of time. Now, I wish he would. I wish he'd give us all the strength and all the grace we would need ahead of time. But what I would really like is this, that there would be this spiritual warehouse of spiritual strength for me. Sort of like just in my garage with neatly, neat shelves and boxes of spiritual strength just stacked up in my garage that I'm going to be able to use one day. And I just go to that garage and I lift it up and I look and it's clean and neat like all of your garages are. But there's shelves and shelves and boxes of spiritual strength just stacked up in there. And so I see those boxes and I think, you know, I don't even have to worry that I'm going to have enough strength for tomorrow. Because I got so much of it stored away that I don't even have to be concerned with that. See, most of the things that tie us up into knots, the things that Byron was praying about today just in our pastoral prayer, most of the things that tie us into knots with fear and worry and anxiety are things that didn't happen yet. Right? Yeah. And as I look to tomorrow's problem, I only have today's strength for it. I only have the strength for today. I don't have the strength for tomorrow's issues that I'm worried and anxious and fearful about. I, I can't handle tomorrow's problem today because God has a just-in-time delivery system. And we, we read about this in the Old Testament when God's feeding the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, he's providing for them, and they'd get up in the morning, and God would lay out this manna, this sort of bready, sticky substance that would have everything that the children of Israel needed. And so they'd get up in the morning and unzip their tents and walk out, and then they'd see this manna, and they'd collect it, and they'd mash it together and make it into cakes, and they'd eat it, and it was everything that they need, all the nutrients, all the carbs, all the protein, perfectly balanced for them in that manna. But some of them got fearful about, will there be manna for us tomorrow? And so they would gather double and stick it in jars, and then they'd put it in their tents, and then unzip up their tents and go to sleep. And they'd get up in the morning, and they'd think, oh, it's all going to be okay today. I don't have to worry about if God's going to provide me for me today because I saved up my manna from yesterday. And they go and they open up their jar and it's filled with mold and maggots. And they'd unzip their tents and they'd look and there's manna for that day. With the exception of the Sabbath. Because God was training and instructing the children of Israel to take a day of rest. And so on the day before Sabbath, they collected manna for the Sabbath day. And they'd store it up in the jars. And the ones that did that foolishly, and the next day it was moldy and maggot-filled, they thought, oh, no, it's going to happen again. But they'd get up in the morning and look to that jar, unzip their tents, no manna on the ground on the Sabbath. They'd look at that jar, and that manna was still good. You see, the caveat to all of this, though, is that God seldom works in the same way twice. When the children of Israel entered the promised land, finally, their first battle was this strong and fortified city of Jericho. 
And so God instructed for battle time, to prepare for battle time, to march around the city. And so they did. But when it was go time, when it was battle day, God said, march around that city seven times and blow your trumpets. And when you do, you'll see what happens. And they did, and the walls came tumbling down, and they defeated Jericho. But it's interesting to know, in all the battles after that day, after the Jericho battle, never again did they use the same methodology of marching around that city seven times and blowing the trumpet to win a battle. It's because God doesn't want us to rely on a method. He doesn't want us to rely on a system or a practice. God wants us to rely solely on him, and we find our sufficiency in Jesus Christ through this. The first theological concept made simple is our sufficiency in Christ. The second one is one that's argued and talked about very often. It's called our predestination. And in churches all across the world, you have sort of the crosstown rivalry, the Hatfields and McCoys, the Calvinists and the Arminians. And, and, and what, what we have is there's these people who argue about what is right, what is the correct theological concept or doctrine about our predestination. Now, when we talk about Calvinists and Armenians, it's not Armenian, right? It's not people with the A-I-N at the end of their name like Bilzekian and Nazarian and Maeda-ian and, and things like, like that. So let's take a look at this. It's, it's our predestination. We find this in verses 4 through 6. It says in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, that's our word, for us, us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So what does this mean? The first way we can look at this, what it means is God chose us. We didn't choose him. That God chose us and that we didn't choose him. God has a plan and he pursued you. Now, it's interesting because you ask someone, oh, how did you come to know Christ? And a lot of people will use the phrase, well, I was really searching for God. I was searching for all different things, and I was searching for God, and I found him. Or they'll, in the, in, with church leadership, we'll talk about um, someone, and say, oh, I met someone at church the other day, and, and, and we were talking, and man, they're, they're really seeking. They're, they're a real seeker. Now, it's okay to use those phrases, but it's just not technically accurate. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. In Ephesians chapter 2, later on in the next chapter, it says this, For it is by grace, and grace means unmerited favor. Nothing that we did... Um, that would make us attractive, for it is by grace, this unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When the Bible talks about predestination, 
God is the one that's on the prowl. God's the one that's hunting us down. He's the one searching for us. It's, it's not like we did a whole bunch of really great things. And we're so talented and so gifted that God sought us out because of our merit. It's not like some, this, this something like a cosmic fantasy draft in the heavens where, where God says, you know what, I want Sammy on my team. He's so creative, and he's so compassionate, and he's such a good leader. i got to have Sammy on my team. I choose Sammy. That's not the way it works. From the father of the faithful, Abraham, to the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, it's always been God who chose us. If you read in Joshua chapter 24, by the way, Abraham was probably an idol worshiper, and God, God chose him. The Apostle Paul, he himself says, I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer of Christians, and God chose him. The second thing we can say about what this all means is our destiny is certain. That God chose us, we didn't choose him. The second thing we can say about this, what this means is that our destiny is certain. That God has a plan. That the church would be made up both of Jewish people and of Gentiles and that we would together be followers of Jesus Christ. In your small groups this week, on the back side of your notes, there's, there's quite a bit of homework, but I, I think you'll find it really interesting. On the back side of your notes, what, one, one chapter that you're going to read is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And there you're going to read that, that God foreknew you, and he predestined you to be made in the image of his Son. And therefore, if God is for us, who can be against us? And even if you're going through hard times in your life, you'll be more than conquerors because God loves us. And nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But there's something that exists in all of this because if that's how it works, that God chose us and that our destiny is certain, there is a tension that exists out there. When our kids were young, even before they were born, Janet, my wife, and I would, would pray for them. And we'd pray that our kids, that their little hearts would be drawn by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. We'd pray that daily, multiple times a day when they were young. And there are a number of people that I pray daily for, that they would come to know Jesus. Janet and I were just talking about this just last week. Um, we were, were praying for this person that's come into our lives most recently. And we were just talking about, we were talking about just the wonder, just the imagination as we're thinking and praying for this person. We wonder how and why this person came into our life. And that if anyone else has ever prayed for them, because they don't know Jesus, and how fervently we're praying for her multiple times a day to come to know Jesus. But if God's chosen us and we didn't choose him and he chose us before the creation of the world, why should we pray? Now here's where we get even more tension that we read in the Bible that men and women in the Bible, they cry out to God about their circumstances. We read about people in the Bible 
about their situations and, and they ask God to relent or they ask him to start something that he's not doing or they ask him to stop something that, you, that he is doing. And then he hears them in their prayer and then he responds. And, and I read in, in Exodus chapter 32, it's a very interesting passage. It's hard to reconcile with this doctrine of predestination. In Exodus chapter 32, God's interacting with Moses. And God's mad at the children of Israel because they're being disobedient and, and they're, they're, uh, they're going off on a, on a, on a bad uh, road. And, and God's talking to Moses about this, and he's so ticked off. He says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And then Moses says this in Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. It says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And this is what he prays. He says, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? And Moses says, turn from your fierce anger, God. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. <clears throat> I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So Moses prays this after God so ticked off. And then in verse 14 it says, And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. What am I supposed to do with that? James chapter 4, verse 2. The last sentence of this verse, it says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And Jesus himself in Luke chapter 11, verse 9 says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God is sovereign. God's already got his plan. And he's working that plan. And yet we read here, we see here, he's saying, if you'll turn your hearts, if you'll pray to me, if you'll come to me, I'll respond. So because we're all Western, you know, we're linear thinking, you know, this leads to this, this leads to, you know, it goes like that. What we want to do right now is say, okay, okay then, so what's, what's, what's right then? Is God sovereign or can we pray and engage God in such a way that he hears us and responds? Is he sovereign or can we engage God, God and he'll respond to us? Which is it? Yes. The answer is yes to both. According to the scriptures. Many of us who think deeply about these things, these theological concepts and doctrines, we sort of, sort of firmly entrench ourselves in, no, I really believe this and I can't even think about that, or no, I really believe this way and I really can't think about that. And still others of us sort of lean to one side or or lean to the other side. 
But one thing is for sure. We will not be divided by this doctrine that the scriptures are clear on and not entirely clear on at the same time. These are theological concepts made simple that we're going to tackle today. First is our sufficiency in Christ. Second is our predestination. But I want to end our time today with the rest of the story of the church at Ephesus. Because what we read about here in in this letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus is not everything that we know about Ephesus. In fact, I want you to write down in your notes Acts chapter 18 and 19. Because there, in the Acts of the Apostles, we read about the start of this church and, and its incredible start that they had. So the rest of the story of the church at Ephesus is, 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 number one, it was a church with a great start. And if you read Acts 18 and 19, it'll tell you all about that incredible start they had, this city transform, transforming start, this church plant in the city in Ephesus. It was a church with a great start. The second thing, it was, it was a church with a great pedigree. Who are your pastors? People would say, oh, it's the Apostle Paul, and later it's Timothy. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. We know that. And Timothy, there's a book named after him. You have great pastors there. You have great leaders. This woman that's named a number of times in the Bible, Priscilla, an incredible leader for that church in Ephesus. It was a church with a great start. It was a church with a great pedigree, great pastors, great leaders. The third, it was a church with a great ministry. And we read about what that ministry is like in the very last book in your Bible, in Revelation chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, To the angel in the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And scholars know this as Jesus Christ himself at the time. Verse 2 says about the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. This is the ministry of this. This is a powerful ministry here. The Bible commends the church at Ephesus with good deeds and hard work, and perseverance, refusing to tolerate sin, solid biblical doctrine, endurance and hardship, not quitting when everyone else grew weary. But the last thing we know about the church at Ephesus is this. It was a church with a sad ending. Because in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 7, it says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. They have forsaken the love that they had at first. With all the good things that they've done. The word for love here, used here, is the Greek word agape. And agape is best described in that sort of classic and famous verse, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says that this agape love, this love that the church at Ephesus held back, this love is patient and this love is kind. This love is not envious or proud. It's not boastful. 
It's not dishonoring, it's not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered. This love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This love never fails. This was a church with excellent ministry, but it didn't love one another well. This church was hard on people. They were complainers. They were gossipers. They didn't get along with other churches, and they weren't open to people who were different than them. So what did Jesus say to them? If you continue that and you don't repent, I'm leaving you. I'm out of here. And I think, I, 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 have, to, I have to get sort of reflective, introspective, contemplative about our church family, the Nova Church family. And I, and I think, because people will come and, and they'll just look and they'll say, what a, what a great building you have. How open and, and the natural light coming in. It's a great big fan that keeps everyone cool. What nice classrooms that you have. And that playground, oh man, maybe the best in the city. That prayer garden that's coming together, wow. They look at our campus and see three and three-quarter acres of open space where city leaders have told me this is probably the largest piece of open space in the city of Torrance that's privately owned. What are you going to do with it? Well, we're going to keep it open. People come and they say, what great music you have. What good sermons you have. What, what wonderful children and youth ministries. What great classes that you teach. But if you don't love, like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the presence of Jesus will not be here. And the theological concepts and doctrines are very important. But they are used so that we can be instructed on how to live to be more like Jesus Christ. Not to divide over doctrine. Jesus saved us so that we would be different. And he redeemed us. And next week, we're going to talk about that important theological concept and doctrine redemption. For now, let's all stand for the benediction.